So we will continue our podcast with Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. This is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, let's go off to ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's getting, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, You feed them. With what they asked. We have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. How much bread do you have? He asked. Go find out. They came back and reported, We have five bread, five loaves and of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish and looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward, the disciples picked up the 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. So I don't know if this particular incident is directly related right after John the Baptist's death, but it seems like the disciples had gone on some uh, <clears throat> some ministry outing, and then when they returned, Jesus said, let's go to a quiet place and rest a little bit. And uh, because Jesus was now at the height of his ministry and very popular, People followed him everywhere. And <clears throat> the Bible says here that people ran ahead predicting where he would end up. And sure enough, as he came to the shore, there were already people waiting for him. So he began to teach. The story is pretty straightforward. It's a miracle, obviously. But I don't, I don't know if there's a lot to be drawn from here. But we can try. Uh, the part about coming apart and resting a while, Ellen White has a whole chapter in Desire of Ages on, on that section, and it's a, it's a really good chapter, especially uh, when somebody's new in the faith and, and, and getting, you know, trying to get involved in ministry. Uh, because it's very easy to think that, um, you know, if we're, we're out there and we need to do ministry and we need to be active and... Uh, uh, the minute you're out helping other people, there's there's always a high demand. You know, you're you're done helping one person, and somebody else comes and needs help, and it's it's very easy to to wear yourself out. And then what happens is they become discouraged, and then it's it's easy to like fall away yourself and and lose your faith and get discouraged and all this. And you know, it's it's good that Jesus took them apart uh, a little bit just to give them a chance to rest and, and relax and to decom decompress and just uh, uh, debrief with Jesus regarding the things that they had experienced. Yeah. I remember <clears throat> um, 
when I just started out in ministry, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of people that um, I think there's a special class of people that are drawn to doing ministry, and they have what is called the helper gene. So these are people that they may be altruistic or they just they just want to be a part of something or they just want to help. They see someone that needs something and they want to help. And so a lot of times what you have is people will join and like you said, they will they will work themselves to death if they're not pulled aside and they, they take some time to refresh and renew. So staying upon this particular subject that you raised, there are certain things that can make your uh, rest and renewal better. So one of the things that obviously is there is uh, a time where you spend time with God just by yourself. So there's no, <clears throat> there's no what do you call it, uh, substitute for that time with God, that connection with God, renewing that connection in a deeper way. The second thing that I would say is getting some rest. Even on uh, retreats that I've been on, they're scheduled to the, to the minute, down to the minute, and <clears throat> you end up more tired from the retreat than you were going up, you know, to the retreat. So I think, I think one of the things that, that is important to build in is some time for rest, for real rest, for sleep, and for relaxation, so that uh, the mind and the body can be renewed by, <clears throat> by the time of is there anything else that you think? Um, I think it's a good time to also bring up the the issue, uh, the, the topic of boundaries. Uh, this is something that people learn as they mature, regardless of whether it's it's revolving ministry or anything else. Even it doesn't even have to do necessarily Christianity. It's just that um, some people are naturally more inclined to know how to handle pro properly set boundaries, and other people are not. And it also has to do with maturity. You know, when you're younger, uh, you're you're kind of unsure how to do it, and then later on, you 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 kind of get a, a feel for it. But it's especially pertinent in ministry, and it's especially pertinent for people that are young in the faith, because, like we said, it's very easy to work yourself to death. It's very easy to not know how to say no to people that are demanding your attention. Uh, there's lots of people who, you know, the minute you go out and you do some kind of ministry, whether it's knocking on doors, whether it's going to a nursing home, whether it's going someplace where people are needy, uh, a lot of people just need somebody to, to listen to them, somebody to spend time with them, somebody to give them attention. And you're just one person and you cannot satisfy everybody. And you're not God. You're not there to take God's place and, and be in all places at once. Um, so you just have to learn how to put limits on yourself. And sometimes it's hard because somebody will even get mad at you and say, hey, how come you're not helping me and I, I need your help or, or things like that. And you need to be able to say, uh, sorry, this this isn't something I can do right now and be okay with saying no when it's time to say no. Yeah. And it takes a little bit of practice to learn how to set those boundaries in, in the right place, so to speak. Yeah. Another thing that, that I think is important uh, for taking time off or taking time away is to build skills. And a lot of those skills are not readily apparent when you're in ministry, but lots of skills, like whether it's interpersonal skills or communication skills, or just in general taking a refresher on, on a certain part of the Bible uh, or how to, learning how to preach better or whatever. There are certain skills that make you better as a minister or as a leader in the church 
that you, that's important for you to take that time to, to sharpen the saw, so to speak, and uh, or the axe, and, and just be more efficient with the work that you're doing, or it helps you be more efficient. <coughs> for me, <coughs> I think the time away from uh, from the regular ministry allowed me to think strategically or a little bit more than the day-to-day -day operations, more long-term, more um, just just thinking about what what is possible or having ideas of what may, you know, what, what could be possible in the, in the future. So a lot of times there's, there's that aspect of it as a leader where you take some time apart <coughs> and you learn how to, how to uh, sharpen your, your own saw and also um, become a better, become a better leader. Now, just focusing on the sub-leadership, so let's say you're the, the leader or the pastor of a ministry or of the church, and you're taking some of your elders or other leaders along with you on a retreat, what are some things that would be helpful for those people? Um, I mean, I, it depends, I guess, what the retreat is for and what you're trying to focus on, but, uh, um, you know, if you're trying to mentor people, then... Uh, if you're trying to teach them how to do ministry, then, um, you know, there's lots of things that you could work with them on, like, for example, how to, um, how to read a person, kind of know where they're coming from, know their, their personality types, how to approach them, how to introduce them to Christ, how to give them uh, the kind of information that is appropriate for their level of understanding and, and there, i mean there's there's lots of things or we could you could be doing a retreat on specific topics like marriage or um <clears throat> you know health or something else so um yeah retreats are useful in that sense because you could just focus on something and train people in, in that respect yeah so <clears throat> for me taking people apart so that they can they can also rest and relax and and develop some individual skills is, is important. But it's also important for the team leadership to find some cohesiveness, find, uh, uh, just get to know each other on a personal level and give, give them the chance to hear each other out in a longer format that is not tied to agenda topics or, or issues that are of contention. And it gives people the chance to to just be personable and uh, feel like they're being they're being heard and uh, that they're understood and it helps a lot I think down the road with with uh, complex situations or uh, meetings when meetings can get heated or tough when confronting an issue uh, those prior experiences can can bridge the gap uh, on the personal basis and really help to move things along. So anyway, Jesus took this time apart and as he came off the boat, he realized that uh, <coughs> people were there and that they they were wanting to be, and they, they had needs that needed to be met. And so Jesus began to teach them and he taught them all day until the disciples told him that it was evening and they should he should let them go. And so Jesus then uh, really presented a tough situation to his disciples. He said, you should feed them. 
and they understandably reacted in a human way not realizing that Jesus was also the Lord and master of of anything that was within his possession so uh, here we see Jesus saying um, how much food do you have and I wanted to make a special point about this because when he said, how much bread do you have, go find out. And then they came back with a precise number. I wanted to say something very specific about this. And the, the thing I wanted to say is that there is a place for measurement in ministry. Whether it is a poll or it is uh, figuring out whether something is effective or not, or just uh, financial documents or whatever it is, there is a there is a place for this kind of uh, measurement, and there has to be a level of honesty in in this this fact finding, because if if we get the wrong facts back, the wrong numbers, we draw wrong conclusions, and then it affects the decision making of of a ministry, or of the church itself, the local church, or the larger church in general, and. I know that a lot of the, for example, the seemingly mundane task, when I was a kid, I should, I should start with this, when I was a kid, I went through this book, and I've been trying to find it ever since, but I went through this book that described every um, church role in detail. So it talked about what a Sabbath school superintendent was supposed to do, what a church clerk was supposed to do what uh, an elder and deacon and everybody else was supposed to do. So I read this whole book, right? But one of the things that was most uh, intriguing to me or that, that struck me as a kid was the description of the church clerk and how a very high importance was put on making sure that the, that the names on the roll matched the actual attendees and that people were accepted or taken off the roll attendance was taken, um, various things that were the responsibility, the minutes, things like that of meetings were taken, which I just don't find um, in today's churches uh, that, that way. But in those days, it was, I mean, in that particular book, um, it was very well laid out. And the reason for that is that even though lots of churches don't do it per se today, or they don't do it as, as accurately, um, the attendance actually, attendance and baptism actually transfer back towards delegation at the, at the higher levels of the, of the church, whether it's the conference, the union, the division, or even higher at the general conference session. So a lot of divisions have realized in the world that with the, the size of delegation comes in a portion of the funds. So if you want a larger amount of money, you just have to have larger numbers. That's the simple thing. And so in 2013, the church conducted a survey of this kind of uh, working the numbers, so to speak, and found a high level of fraud in the, in the numbers. And they haven't really like taken action on it, but I feel like it's, uh, it's really a, um, a failure of ministry um, when when you when you do that kind of stuff and so over here in this particular story they're very accurate 
I mean, they had to be. They went out, they looked for food, and they found out that there was five loaves and two fishes. And, and that was it. And so they brought it forward to Jesus, and then Jesus did a miracle. But I think, I don't know, if you have any thoughts on, on the particular process of data gathering, but there is a particular importance in the honesty that goes into data gathering. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think it's counterintuitive for a lot of us uh, coming from a religious angle, just saying like, well, we need to let the Holy Spirit lead and, and not get in the way with our own calculations. Um, but what ends up happening is that we we end up deceiving ourselves in, in what we're doing and we're, we're missing out on the work we could be doing. Uh, so, you know, this this definitely applies to the situations you, you describe, but we could also apply to, say, like an evangelistic meeting. Um, uh, when we're not careful with, with figuring out, you know, what the how much time, energy, money, and effort we put into something and what the results were, and then figure out if there's a different way to do it that could be more effective, uh, you know, we're losing out on all the people that we could be reaching. And then we kind of justify it to ourselves because we say something like, you know, even even one soul, if if we if we save one soul, it's it's worth it. Yeah, but it would have been even more worth it if we had saved five souls instead of just one. Yeah, and we we don't really think about that, and we're not careful to keep track of our records so that we can figure out our, our effectiveness in that way. I don't know if I've ever told this story before, but long ago when I was uh, in Michigan, I used to attend. Uh, the church in South Bend, one of the Adventist churches in South Bend, Indiana. And they had decided to read the book Evangelism, and they had decided to conduct a whole series based on that book. So they found a public place, which was some uh, city uh, meeting place, like like we have the Orange Show over here, like they had some you know yeah. major place that, that people would meet. <coughs> they found a building... They got an evangelist that was trained to do evangelism. And they did, uh, I don't know what kind of pre-work they did for the area. I think they just blanketed the area with with flyers. And then everyone was supposed to invite themselves and, and a friend to the meetings. So I didn't go to the meetings personally because I didn't have transportation at the time. But I could hear the the results of the meetings, you know, every Sabbath they were they were talking about it because it was I think a 21 day series. So they spent $50,000, I remember, on this particular series and at the end of it, uh one person got baptized. Like you said. And they the pastor and everybody else spun it like, you know, you can't put a price on one soul. I mean, Jesus died for this person. And it was great. You know, everyone was happy and life went back to normal. And then three weeks later, the one soul stopped coming to church. <laughs> you know, and that was the it. That was it. That was it. Like nobody ever talked about the one soul that stopped coming, you know, despite his value. And so that was my introduction to to evangelism and budgets and, you know, <clears throat> the kind of stuff that we do. And... After a while, I realized the flaws in the whole thing, and then I went on to, to do my own thing, which ended up being even worse, but anyway. Um, yeah, so what I'm saying is there's this, there's this thing where we sometimes um, over-spiritualize the numbers, 
and we don't take a hard look at the effectiveness of this ministry. Now, looking at this particular story, Jesus asked for an accounting of what was there, and they told him he fed 5,000 men, plus women and children, and it doesn't say it in this particular story, does it? No, it does. It says that the, the, the disciples picked up 12 baskets left over of bread and fish. So there was more than enough to give people to take home, or some people to take home, or for Jesus and his disciples to have another meal the next day or something like that, you know. So, but anyway, Jesus took care of the needs of those people there. And I think, now I want to, I want to bring up one other aspect of this, because this is a, a kind of a controversial term, a loaded term. But uh, I'm sure you've heard of the term rice Christians. So one of the things that we do overseas, whether it's Africa or Asia, and I don't know about South America, but definitely Asia, we always reason that if we take care of the physical needs of the people, <coughs> the spiritual needs will take care of themselves. And so what we do is when some evangelist comes over from overseas, we cook these huge, what we call digs, or, you know, these big pots of rice and uh, some kind of dish with it. Sometimes it's meat. And uh, we feed everybody because we reason that, like Jesus said, you know, they've come from far away and whatever, and they need food and we need to feed them, right? And a lot of times, those people, they are poor and needy and that kind of stuff. And they just get used to the, feed, the food. And they're there for the food. And uh, so this, this month, you know, the Pentecostals are there and they cook. Next month, the Mormons are there. Then the month after, the Jehovah's Witnesses are there. Or whoever, you know, and the Adventists and the Catholics. And so they just go from church to church, just adding themselves to all the roles of everybody. So they, these people can go home and tell how they, you know, increase their number and uh, to the donors. And then the donors give more money thinking that the gospel is going to the world, you know. But in reality, nothing's going to the world. These people are just having a good meal and they're, having, they're listening to a good talk. And next month, there'll be somebody else there who will have another good talk, and there'll be another good meal. So, uh, in in the 1800s, I think, if I'm not mistaken, what had happened is they found that people who were whose needs were just being met and nothing else, that when those, those needs were cut back, the attendance also dropped. So that's where the term rice Christians <coughs> came, I believe. But to me, I think that, that that whole model, there needs to be some kind of limit to to this story. Like, I think it's it's we can take it too far. And a lot of times we do take it too far, and I don't think that was the, the intent for Jesus there. I think Jesus was just trying to demonstrate that the spiritual needs of people are just as important as the physical needs. And sometimes it is just as important to take care of the physical needs right there and then. And that's what he did. And it was a demonstration of his divinity one more time. But in this particular story, I think the care that Jesus uh, showed in finding out what resources were there and then making sure everyone was fed in an organized way. They sat in 50s and 100s and they were served as such. And then the food, the, the fragments were collected again uh, so that everyone had what they needed and what they didn't was collected. Um, all that stuff uh, shows care and it shows concern. So Jesus never let anything go to waste. Yeah.
Yeah, and, and he, he used their food and multiplied it as opposed to creating brand new food himself. So he taught people how to use their own resources and maybe the skills and the tools they had available uh, while at the same time blessing them. So there's this sort of um, uh, working together of the human and the divine. And that's one of, one of the main lessons we see throughout scripture where people are, are on both sides. You know, they rely either entirely on the human or entirely on the divine. When in fact, we need to, to do what we can do, trusting that God will supply the difference. So, yeah. 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 So great thoughts. And uh, I think the, the main part of this story for us is one, that we should take the time to rest and relax in ministry when we need it. And second is to be careful in gathering the, the proper data and making sure that we're drawing the right conclusions. And the third thing is to really genuinely care for people's spiritual needs and physical needs and provide for them as God gives us the ability.